Beethoven Orchestraville. Orchestraville? Where's that? You change, you change four score and seven to, to 87? A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. I don't blame them for dyeing your hair, I said, but they waited too long to embalm it. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Baccarello. Thanks, sweetie, and thank you for tuning into episode 90 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Moving on with unofficial Franklin Mint Month, we come across another extremely talented and influential saxophone player. His tragic life may have mirrored another sax player featured in a past episode, but Lester's playing was all his own. So, get ready to hear the musician Billy Holiday nicknamed Prez in Volume 90, Sax Master Young. And we are moving on again to the booklet for tune intros. Shoeshine Boy was made on Lester Young's auspicious recording debut, antedating his first session with the full Basie Orchestra. John Hammond assembled this small group of Basieites for Vacalion, which issued the recording for contractual reasons under the names of drummer Joe Jones and trumpeter Carl Tatty Smith. Basie's opening piano chorus shows how well he had assimilated the stride lessons of Fats Waller. Young's two choruses announce in no uncertain terms his new conception of tone and phrasing. He glides through the first chorus, backed by perfectly placed drum accents. Lester tongues one note for almost four measures to open his second chorus, a young trademark that was to become an overused cliché in lesser hands.
Jones Smith Incorporated with Shoeshine Boy, written by Saul Chaplin. Of course, Lester Young on tenor saxophone, Carl Tetty Smith on trumpet, Count Basie on piano, Walter Page on string bass, and Joe Jones on drums. It was recorded during autumn of 1936 and released on Vocalion Records. Okay, why this album for this episode? Well, Lester Young might have been the second sax player in the box set of Jazz Masters of the Sax, but his playing is even more effortless than Coleman Hawkins, who led this box set off and who we featured in Volume 66 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Lester Young also plays happier music on this disc, well, in in my opinion anyways, and you know that's what I prefer. I Never Knew recorded at the same session as Just You, Just Me, a song we will not hear, is taken at a faster tempo. Lester starts off with three choruses, each building in intensity. Johnny Guarneri's piano solo shows his eclecticism, and Catlett, who comes to the fore for some precise exchanges with bassist Slam Stewart, continues his solo behind Young's mop-mop figure. Thank you. 
the Lester Young Quartet with I Never Knew. Written by Gus Kahn and Ted Fiorito. It featured Johnny Guarneri on piano, Slam Stewart on string bass, Sid Catlett on drums, and of course, Lester Young on tenor saxophone. It was recorded on December 28, 1943, and released on Keynote Records. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. Various Artists, Jazz Masters of the Sax. It's on the Franklin Mint Record Society label. It is number FM Jazz 014. It's on the Institute of Jazz Studies Official Archive Collection, the Greatest Jazz Recordings of All Time series. It's a four-vinyl LP compilation, red vinyl, red box set format. Its country of origin is Sweden. It was released in 1983, and its genre, of course, is jazz. And this is the fourth box set of the series and the second record in the set. We will hear seven of the 12 songs on this record. Okay, let's move on to the liner notes for Lester Young that comes from this booklet. Coleman Hawkins established the tenor saxophone's legitimacy in jazz, but Lester Young's task may have been even more difficult for he set out to prove that there was more than one valid approach to the instrument that Hawkins had so indelibly stamped. Rather than following Hawkins, Young was attracted to the work of the C-melody saxophonist Frankie Trombauer, whose legitimate tone, technical facility, and concise approach Young transformed into a unique tenor style. Producing a light, airy tone, he projected complete relaxation, giving the impression of floating over the rhythm section. Young's conception was so radical of departure that when he replaced Hawkins in the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra in 1934, he was subjected to constant pressure from his peers to adopt the Hawkins sound. He lasted less than four months with the band. Young remained his own man, however, that eventually his rhythmic and sonic innovations touched players of all instruments. Okay, let's see what prices this record is being sold at on Discogs.com. Comes in at $39.95 for the highest, $17.60 for the lowest, with an average of $25.70 and a median of $25. It was last sold on Discogs.com on July 24th, 2022 for that high price of nearly $40. And I couldn't find a copy on eBay or Amazon. Now, my dad's record is in really good condition, except the Young's version of Body and Soul has some extra hiss. Must have been played as much as Coleman Hawkins' even more famous version from that first record. The good condition is probably because the plastic sleeves have kept it like that. The box itself is in really good condition. There's no wear, and this is not a collection that my dad put his famous address label on. And the booklet is in really good condition. Very clean, no creases, no bends, maybe a couple fingerprints on the front, but I really can't help with that. So I'm going to value my dad's box set at $12. Okay, next tune-up has 
a MASH connection, something I haven't done in a while. And I only mention it because when Hawkeye says it in reference to Charles Winchester approaching, I thought it might be a saying from the past I wasn't sure, but I definitely didn't realize it was a song. Clap hands! Here comes Charlie! Young once told Nat Hentoff that he preferred not to listen to his own recordings because, quote, if I listened to them too much, I'd be thinking about them when I'm playing or recording new ones instead of creating, unquote. But he said this recording is one of his particular ones he enjoyed hearing. The arrangement is a typically loose and swinging bassist affair filled with riffs to complement the soloist. Altoist Earl Warren flies through the bridge of the first chorus, and then Lester makes one of his patented entrances, two-bar tongue break. The second of his two choruses contain more of this tonguing. And there is the Count Basie Orchestra with Clap Hands, Here Comes Charlie, written by Billy Rose, Ballard McDonald, and Joseph Meyer. It featured Earl Warren on alto sax, Jack Washington on alto and Barry sax, Dickie Wells, Benny Morton, and Dan Minor on trombone, Buck Clayton, 
Ed Lewis, Harry Edison, and Shad Collins on trumpet, Freddie Green on guitar, Walter Page on string bass, Joe Jones on drums, Count Basie on piano, and of course, Lester Young on tenor saxophone. It was recorded August 4th, 1939, and it was released on Vocalion Records. Okay, time now to learn about this incredibly talented saxophonist. Lester Willis Young was born on August 27, 1909 in Woodville, Mississippi, and spent his early childhood near New Orleans in Algiers, Louisiana. His entire family was involved in music, and after a move to Minneapolis in 1920, Lester's father formed a family band. Lester began on drums, but switched to alto sax at age 13, having discovered that by the time he had packed up his drum set after an engagement, quote, all the pretty girls have left, unquote. By the time he quit the family band at 17, Young had received a solid foundation in music. After two years on the road, he returned to Minneapolis, where he worked steadily in a variety of settings. By 1932, Young was already attracting some attention and was recruited by an important territory band, the Blue Devils. A year later, along with several other members of the Devils, he joined Benny Moten's famous Kansas City band, which included pianist Bill Count Basie. After a short stay with Fletcher Henderson in 1934, Young returned to the Midwest. In 1936, he joined Basie, who, using the Moten personnel as a nucleus, had formed his own orchestra. The Basie Band, and especially its All-American Rhythm section, provided a perfect foundation for Lester Young's innovative style. Talent scout John Hammond, an early booster of the band, was instrumental in introducing it to a wider public. Hammond also brought Young and Billie Holiday together, and the empathy between saxophonist and singer resulted in some of the era's most touching recordings. It was Billie who nicknamed Lester Prez for president, while he christened her Lady Day. Although the Basie Orchestra was enjoying a growing popularity, Young began to feel dissatisfied with some of the business and musical practices that inevitably accompany commercial success. In 1940, he left the band and decided to strike out on his own. Young's retiring personality and laconic manner were ill-suited to a leadership role, however, and he returned to Basie in 1943, remaining until he was drafted the next year. Racial prejudice, alcohol and marijuana problems, together with bureaucratic insensibility combined to make military service a disaster, left permanent scars on Young. The nightmare ended in a court-martial and a prison sentence. After his discharge in late 1945, Young moved to California, where he took part in many of impresario Norman Granz's enterprises, including long tours with jazz at the Philharmonic. Some felt that his greatest playing was behind him, but the Young of the 1940s was still a potent musical force. He had difficulty coming to grips with his by then numerous imitators, some of whom had eclipsed him in fame and fortune. His own playing, however, did not stagnate. As Young, whose speech was as personal and as expressive as his playing, told interviewer Francois Peel, uh, Paul Steve, I developed my tenor to sound like an alto, to sound like a tenor, to sound like a bass, and I'm not through with it yet. That's why they get all trapped up. They say, God damn, I never heard Prez play like this. Unquote. The mid and late 1950s was a period of few peaks and many valleys caused by Young's drinking and other health problems. 
On occasion, a relatively healthy Lester Young would startle audiences with flashes of past brilliance and even hints of adventurous new directions, but for the most part, his creativity was thwarted by his physical decline in a syndrome remarkably similar to the one that later plagued Coleman Hawkins. Young made his final studio recordings and live performances in Paris in March 1959 with drummer Kenny Clark. At the tail end of an abbreviated European tour during which he ate next to nothing and drank heavily. On a flight to New York City, he suffered from internal bleeding due to the effects of alcoholism and died in the early morning hours of March 15, 1959, only hours after arriving back in New York at the age of 49. Another talented life wasted. Okay, let's move on. Lester Blows Again comes from the first of several sessions Young led for the Aladdin label. Without preliminaries, Young launches into an improvisation based on the chord changes of Honeysuckle Rose. His tone is not quite as real as in his pre-army days. Trombonist Vic Dickinson's solo is full of his characteristic sly humor. Note the interpolation of I'll Never Be the Same. The legendary pianist Dodo Marmorosa shows he has advanced conception, and Young takes it out with powerful backing by Dickinson. Thank you. 
It's the Young Quintet with Lester Blows Again, written by Lester Young, featuring Vic Dickinson on trombone, Dodo Marmorosa on piano, Freddie Green on guitar, Red Callender on string bass, Henry Tucker Green on drums, and of course, Lester Young on tenor saxophone. It was recorded in October of 1945 and released on Aladdin Records. Time now for this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with the musical relationship of a great singer and this great sax master. Now, these excerpts are taken from Billie Holiday and Lester Young, The Intimate Friendship Between Lady Day and Prez, written by James Maycock and posted April 8th, 2015 on TheGuardian.com, and I will drop that link in the show notes. The intensely intimate but totally platonic relationship that developed between Young and Holiday from 1934 was publicly recognized during their lifetime. Their slow physical and mental disintegration from the mid-1940s onwards was uncannily similar as they wrestled with their respective addictions, racist abuse, and their unique character traits. They met in 1934 following Young's arrival in New York to join Fletcher Henderson's group. Holiday invited him to live with her and her mother after he discovered a rat in his Harlem hotel. In her autobiography, she recalled that, quote, he'd come by the joints where I was singing, to hear me or sit in, unquote. At this stage, neither of them had recorded anything, but they constantly boosted one another's morale. By 1937, having recorded independently of each other, they cut some startlingly elegant music together, displaying an unparalleled musical compatibility that verged on telepathy. Holiday admitted she wanted to sing in the style that Young improvised, while he often studied the lyrics before playing a song. Up to 1941, they continued recording music together that was released through Teddy Wilson and his orchestra, Billie Holiday and her orchestra, or Count Basie and his orchestra. In the late 1930s, Young and Holiday's relationship was perhaps at its most cohesive. They toured together with Count Basie's orchestra, gambling on the bus and frequently drinking a mixture of port and gin that they nicknamed a top and bottom. They also loved smoking pot and, with Buck Clayton, were inseparable on the tours across the states, calling themselves the Unholy Three. Despite the often grueling nature of these trips, this was a dynamic period for Young and Holiday. In 1951, a little surprisingly, after performing together for a week in Philadelphia, an argument between Holiday and Young resulted in neither of them speaking to each other for three years. But the couple were reunited on stage at the very first Newport Jazz Festival in 1954. A journalist from Downbeat observed he shuffled on stage and once again was part of a Billy presentation. They later embraced in the dressing room and the feud was over. In the late 1950s, Holiday and Young drank quietly together in bars close to Birdland and saw in one another their own deterioration staring back at them. It was at Young's funeral that she confided to jazz critic Leonard Feather, quote, I'll be the next to go, unquote. She died four months later on July 15th, 1959, with, with less than $1,000 in her name. But despite the bleak nature of their deaths and the sadness that overcame them, both Holiday and Young left behind an extraordinarily beautiful body of work. Okay, now on to a song that I can listen to whoever performs it. I Can't Get Started is a sample of the special magic that occurred whenever Young and Billie Holiday got together in a recording studio. Lester's tender introduction leads into Billie's vocal. 
As always, she reworks the song and makes it her own, dragging out a word here, inserting a pause there, sadly changing the melody. Teddy Wilson's taste for piano fills the spaces. Young maintains this mellow mood for the start of his second chorus, with Billy returning on the bridge. Holiday and her orchestra with I Can't Get Started. Music by Vernon Duke and lyrics by Ira Gershwin. It featured Buck Clayton on trumpet, Dickie Wells on trombone, Margaret Queenie Johnson on piano, Freddie Green on guitar, Walter Page on string bass, Joe Jones on drum, Billy Holiday on vocals, and of course, Lester Young on tenor saxophone. It was recorded September 15th, 1938 and released on Columbia Records. Okay, let's move right into our Franklin Mint bonus track. Nina, an up-tempo blues recorded five years after the song that will finish the show, shows a different but no less affecting Lester Young. 
His tone is more breathy and intimate. His lean phrasing has an almost stream-of-consciousness quality that foreshadows some of the free jazz experiments that were to take place later in the decade. Pianist John Lewis's spare solo compliments Young well. The Young Quartet with Nina, 
and no matter how hard I tried, I could not find the composer on this one. It featured Joe Shulman on acoustic bass, Bill Clark on drums, John Lewis on piano. It was recorded in July of 1950 and released on Clef Records. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Getting to listen more closely to and learning more about each of these great recordings has really been fun for me. Just reading some of these liner notes and finding more through online research makes me wish we had some of these tools while I was in radio. Maybe I'd still be there. Then again, that probably would not have been a good idea. I like paying my bills. Um, That would not have made me very happy. Uh, So let's finish with some happiness, especially from these three famous musicians. I Want to Be Happy reunites Young with Nat King Cole, and he captures much of the buoyancy of the saxophonist's early work. He plays a deceptively calm bridge to the first chorus and then erupts with four trumpet-like blasts, the two solo choruses that follow rank with any of his career. There is some marvelous interplay with Cole and drummer Buddy Rich before Young returns for two joyous final choruses. Thank you. 
always loved that melody young Cole rich trio with i want to be happy written by vincent humans otto harbach and irving caesar with nat king cole on piano buddy rich on drums someone who i did get to see in concert once and of course lester young on tenor sax it was recorded in december of 1945 and released on clef records and there you have more selections from the greatest jazz recordings of all time so thanks for tuning into volume 90 sax master young however you did if you want more information about this show head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com i'll be back next week with all my skips scratches and pops as we finish up franklin mint month with volume 91 oliver is king Until then, go with the flow, my friends. (laughs) 